Steve and Kevin preview Guilds of Ravnica on episode 82 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 82 of So Many Insane Plays, our special Guilds of Ravnica preview card show and a back-to-school metagame update where we take a look at recent trends in the vintage challenges, the results from the Asia Vintage Championship, and some of the hottest decks in the format. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hey, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or the Manadrain.com. We don't have many tournament announcements at the moment, but we do want to remind our audience that Eternal Weekend is upcoming at the end of October. So we're only, boy, we're less than two months away now from Eternal Weekend. And Steve, you have some... At the time of this recording, not the time it goes live. (laughs) That's right. And Steve, you've got NoobCon coming up, right? Well, this is a pretty cool announcement. Uh, I've got an invitation to attend NoobCon next year in April 2019. Which, for those of you who who don't follow old school, is the kind of the premier old school tournament on the calendar next to uh, uh, Jaco's Eternal Central on Eternal Weekend. It's uh, it's in Sweden and it's once a year and it's a, a lot of fun. And this year, I just decided to pull the trigger and go. <laughs> and nice. here's the real here's the really cool wrinkle. I will be traveling with Brian Weissman. Wow! Awesome. Yeah. It's going to be really awesome. We're going to road trip around uh, him, me, and a couple other guys. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to we're going to go to Prague. We're going to go spend a little bit of time in parts of Germany. We're going to go see the Alps. We're going to then we're going to head up to Scandinavia. But here's the here's the other cool thing: the day before NoobCon 11. So NoobCon is an invitational tournament, and a, there's a certain number of invitations that go to players in every country around the world mm-hmm. who participate in old school. So the United States gets like, I think like 10 invitations or like a hundred some players. And then there's a special list of players who get kind of hammer invites from the organizer. But there is another tournament the day before NoobCon called the Wizards Tournament. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin and I have been talking about this a lot. Yep. This will be the Wizards Tournament 2. And if you haven't hold of, heard about this, it's in Gothenburg, Sweden. The Wizards Tournament 2 is deliberately designed to be like Magic was played in 1993, and specifically <laughs> first edition Alpha. So mm-hmm. the only cards that are permitted are those that were printed in not only printed in Alpha, but are Alpha. So you can't use so the specific phrasing in the tournament rules, this is rule 3.2. A second batch of Magic the Gathering has more recently been released uh, has more recently been released by Deckmaster. This printing has far sharper edges and can hence easily be distinguished from cards in the original printing. If anyone has gotten their hands on cards from this batch, these cards are not allowed to be played. So, <laughs> and not only that, so the, the setup for this is 40 card decks, alpha mm-hmm. only, no banned and restricted lists. Uh, al- anti-cards have to be removed in advance, though, so they're de facto banned. <laughs> the timing rules are those that are in the first edition rule book. So there's interrupts 
and there's all kinds of wonky timing rules. So right, it's like damage prevention, damage prevention, <laughs> uh, continuous artifacts. All of them will turn off when tap. Um, uh, there's all kinds of weird protection rules as well. So like you, according to this rules, you can't COP black activated on a black night on, on a white, on a, a, white uh, night. a black. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so you, you can't COP black on a, on a, on a black night because it has protection from white. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. And balance will not <laughs> kill a black knight either. Um, there is a couple of errata. So one of the big changes from last year is last year, but I guess this year, 2018, this, they use disrupting scepters, actual text, which says discard and discard in the, under alpha meant both discard from hand as well as destroy a permanent in play. So, uh-huh. so they fixed that this this coming year so that disrupting scepter will not allow you to d- desert twister permanence in play. Thank God. <laughs> it's not a vindicate on a stick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but this has been really fun. When I first started doing this, I had probably, Kevin, about 70 alpha cards, and now I'm probably close to 100 alpha cards, and I can nice. field some really cool decks. So I've been... I've been. Sp- it's been really frustrating spending a lot of money on Alpha, but fun. I'm part of the Alpha cart now, cult now, and I guess the format, the broader name of this format is Alpha Call Alpha Card Forty. So and huh. yeah, so you basically have to build for, and they also play what's called Fake Anti, which means at the beginning of the game you have to remove one of the top cards from your library, so you're functionally playing thirty nine card decks. If someone oh. owned like twenty one Black Lotuses and you know, 20 Wheel of Fortunes, they could play that deck. But of course, mm-hmm. no one has that. So <laughs> I happen to have an Alpha Lotus. I'm trying to get a second. If anyone has a second, I have a beta and a bunch of trade bait. Um, <laughs> let me know. But this it's real, it's wild. So after April, I'll sh- be sure to come back and we'll do a, an episode, my report from NoobCon and, of course, the Wizards Tournament. Yeah, that'll be fantastic. I look forward to it. <clears throat> All right. Do you have any other announcements? Just one thing. Uh, so... What, I published a recent article on Eternal Central that I think the vintage players will really be interested in, and it relates to this episode. It's a, a look at the evolving vintage metagame over the course of the year in a little bit more detail with a lot more statistics uh, and data than we'll be able to get to in this podcast. But it's on Eternal Central. It's uh, Check it out, and we'll put the link in the show notes. Can we do that, Kevin? Absolutely, we will. All right. So we've got cool stuff to cover in this show, right? We've got a metagame update. We're going to talk in a little more detail about the Asia Vintage Championship result. But first and foremost, we have a preview card for Guilds of Ravnica. So let's get to that here. We are always grateful to Wizards of the Coast, and we thank them again for giving us this preview card to share with you, and this is a doozy. What we have for you is called Mnemonic Betrayal. Mana cost is one blue-black. Sorcery. Exile all cards from all opponents' graveyards. You may cast those cards this turn, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any type to cast those spells. At the beginning of the next end step, if any of those cards remain exiled, return them to their owner's graveyards. Exile, mnemonic, betrayal. So, Steve, where to begin? Mana cost, maybe? (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) So, this mana cost is is obviously not uh, one that's currently in really in vogue in vintage, but we do have 
many things that are comparable to this at the three mana slot. And there is one particular card that always, uh, as I'm reminded of when I see one blue black, and that is Psychotog. But that's a bit of a throwback by today's standards. What's the more recent example of one blue black that you can think of? Anything? Well, there's Demir Cutpurse and Shadow Mage Infiltrator. And <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yep. Recoil. I think Recoil has been played in Vintage at some uh, point. I'm not sure about that. I yeah. think Recoil it's, might. It's been a while if it has. Either way. Yeah. But it's 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 fairly easy to say that a an, a blue and black at three mana is imminently playable because Agreed. we have we have one at least and multiple close um, popular decks in vintage that are in this color combination and could cast this card. I'm no, thinking specifically, yeah, about um, Grixis and Esper variants right now. This effect is a doozy, pretty pr- almost completely unprecedented. With the possible exception of, gosh, Dire Fleet Daredevil yes. allowing you to cast. Yeah. And um, I guess you could go back to um, uh, Hedonist Trove, I think is the card I'm thinking of, that allows you to um, to take from your opponent's graveyards. But seriously, this effect right. Hedonist is... Hedonist Trove costs seven, by the way. Yeah, Hedonist Trove does start with the text, uh, exile all cards from target opponent's graveyard, so it, it shares a little bit in, in common with this, but the fact that this hits all opponents costs three mana and lets you use mana of any type to cast those spells, I mean, this this card has a lot of unprecedented things going on in in combination. I'd like to talk for a moment, though, before we dig into the utility of the card, I'd like to talk about operationally how it functions. What is it like to play this card? Because there are some, in my eyes, there are some non-obvious things. One of them is, the very first thing that happens is you exile all the cards from your opponent's graveyard. And it's opponents, that is S apostrophe, meaning if you're in a multiplayer game like EDH, it gets all of your opponents. If you're in a 2HG game, it gets both of your opponents. If you're in one-on-one, it gets just your single opponent. But the first step is to exile those cards. Then it says you may cast those cards this turn. So there's two things to note from that phrase. One is it's only those cards, not anything else that's in any other zone that may have been exiled for another reason or anything that's put into their graveyard later in the turn is not counted here. And it also uses the word cast, which specifically includes the play of lands. So two key elements from that one phrase. And then it says you may spend mana as though it were mana of any type to cast those spells. That means you're going to be able to play, you're going to be able to tap your Sol Ring, for example, to play Ancestral Recall. You'll note that it says next, at the beginning of the next end step, which means nothing else happens while you're casting those spells. You'll note the lack of the clause that is common on Yawgmoth's Will and Snapcaster Mage and other things, where the cards you cast are not subsequently re-exiled or some such. They simply go to the graveyard as normal. They return to the graveyard. No. Wh- oh, yes. What I mean is, while yes. you're casting them, when they resolve, they go to your their owner's graveyard. And then at the beginning of the next end step, anything else that you haven't cast that was exiled from this card goes back to the graveyard. What this means is, unlike something like Yawgmoth's Will, this card doesn't actually permanently exile anything, unless it's part of the effect of the spell. With Yawgmoth's Will, you cycle through what's there, and it all gets exiled, and within reason, you don't have access to it again. Mnemonic Betrayal gives them everything back, cast or no. They get everything you exiled back into their graveyard. Now, it might be in a different order, but that's about it. So it leaves it there for your opponent to use again, and it also leaves it there for you to use again. 
if you draw and cast another mnemonic betrayal. So that's a definitely, in my opinion, definitely an interesting divergence from the the inevitable Yawgmoth's will comparison. So all those things out of the way, Steve, where should we begin in terms of utility? Well, I think you've done a good job of kind of providing an overview of how this works vis-a-vis other cards like it or not like it. Why don't you begin by talking Mm -hmm. big picture, how you see this playing out in vintage games? So... Yongmoth's Will has the the decided advantage of being able to let you accelerate with mana accelerators. Your your Lotus and Lotus Petal and Lion's Eye Diamond, these kind of things, uh, can be used twice in a turn. That's part of their key value. Your Rituals, anything that produces more mana than it costs, obviously are, are prime candidates. Given that you have to take this from your opponent's graveyard, you won't have guaranteed access to any particular thing. There are some commonalities in Vintage that you can probably rely on. Black Lotus is a good example. Even though your opponent will only have it in a certain subset of games, most decks have Black Lotus. Similar things like certain restricted cards. Unless you're playing against Shops and Dredge, which are, granted, a a significant portion of the metagame, but against the rest of the metagame, you can count on your opponents having Ancestral Recall, Black Lotus, uh, Brainstorm, maybe some cantrips, other utility things that are just valuable to have. So, in general against about 50 to 60% of the metagame, depending on where you live and where you play, you're going to have access to a lot of the basic blue tools. And certain games will be better than others because your opponent will maybe get a Lotus Ancestral Time Walk draw, and as such, you will have access to Lotus Ancestral Time Walk, again, within reason. However, about 40% of the time, you're going to, if you're playing a blue-black-based deck, you're going to be coming up against cards that you are hard-pressed to maximize. Playing against shops, they may legitimately have nothing to do for you for several turns. They, their graveyard may only include things like Wastelands and the occasional, say, Walking Ballista or maybe a Mox that they sacrificed. That, I mean, in the first three or four or five turns of an average workshop game, the only thing in their graveyard is Wasteland and anything you've put there. So that's a trick. Against Dredge, you've got a whole other gambit, meaning their, their yard is going to be stock full of things, but it will also be hard for you to maximize using any of them. For one, you can't flashback things like Dread Return and Cobble Therapy because they will not be in the graveyard, so you have to pay them with mana. And for two, all the rest of their cards, within reason, are the sort of things that are fairly mana inefficient to cast. You, you're not getting a good value if you pay two mana for a Golgari Thug or a Bloodgast. So this card has extremely high variance, I think, in practice. And even when it's good, it's far less reliably mana efficient than, say, Ogmos will, which you generally time when you have access to things like a land drop and maybe replaying a Lotus or some such. Um, Mnemonic Betrayal, you're going to have to be very more, very delicate in your timing because your opponent will not have sequenced their plays to make it good for I, you. I, I think that's some interesting observations. Um, I had one question and one comment. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering how often you think that uh, how often do you think you'll get to play say two or more spells with this out of the graveyard in kind of an let's say an average turn four to six scenario against most ma- most decks. The other question I have is it's it says you may cast those cards this turn. To me, that implies that you mm-hmm. should be able to pay alternative casting costs. Uh, I mean, cast alternative casting costs are still cast are still castings so yes yes that is the same language that you find on jace vrin's prodigy 
uh, that is to say, Jace Telepath Unbound's uh, minus ability. <laughs> so that's the language where Telepath Unbound says you may cast target instant or sorcery cards from your graveyard. Yeah, that's the same language. So you're right. You'll be able to, say, pitch cast forces, uh, return islands for gushes, uh, pay two life for mental missteps, all of the above. To get back to your specific question about playing multiple spells in a turn, I think... Which is really a card advantage question. I'm just trying to get a sense. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I think that within reason, you're going to be able to, t- if you can, if you can extend the game to the point of turn three, four, five, that you'll be able to reliably cast two spells off of this, I think. And the reason I say that is because one is the preponderance of cantrips and vintage, right? Most vintage players, I mean, most vintage blue decks right now, uh, they rarely even have access to hands or keep keepable hands that can't play some kind of filtering or tutoring effect inside of the first turn or two. Preordained being the standard, but then another half dozen or more restricted cards on top of that, the odds are your opponent has put an instant or sorcery into their graveyard inside of the first two turns. But, but that doesn't guarantee you card advantage or even multiple spells with this because you still have to pay their mana, just like with Yawgmoth's Will and just like Snapcaster Mage. So this spell is invariably... That you know the median turn for this, the, where you, the median early turn where you get value out of this is probably three or four. Yeah, I agree with that. Assuming a, a, a collaborative matchup, <laughs> so like against workshops, playing this on three or four is almost certainly going to be useless. You're going to board them out if you were playing them against things like Jeskai, maximum targets. Against things like um, Oath, uh, could be hit or miss against Oath. There are many Oath draws, as you well know, that feature mana and Oath of Druids and counterspells as their the starting point, and then things like Dak Fadens and, um, and cantrips and, and broken spells to follow up. So it could be that the first three or four turns of an Oath game, the only thing going to their graveyard are fetch lands and anything you might have Force of Willed. So I really do think that this is pretty unpredictable, and in the current iterations of how decks are constructed it it's just too unreliable i think to to even be useful that said i do think there are some things you can do from a deck construction standpoint to make this card better for you i mean such as well the first thing that comes to mind is discard effect the card thought seize for example becomes much more tactical and much more effective like duplicative in power when you have this as a follow-up so, and the other thing is simply counter magic. I mean, I know counter magic um, isn't saying much in vintage today. It is a standard that the average deck has, what would you say, t- 10 to 12? Uh, the average blue deck, I should say, has 10 to 12 counters in it, depending. But you can err on the side of more counter magic in your mnemonic betrayal deck, such that more cards are going to your opponent's graveyard early on. It's been a while on. since we've seen a deck use Thought and Seize the- and Mana Drain together, but because Mana Drain generates the colorless that could be used to fuel these spells. Mm. And, of course, Thoughtseize, when you're taking Thoughtseize, it adds a wrinkle to it because normally you're lining up their hand against your hand. But in this case, you might actually, you know, your decision matrix might bend in one direction or the other depending on how useful the card might be to Mm -hmm. you, (laughs) not just to your opponent. (laughs) A very good point. And also worth noting that... What you said about Mana Drain, I think, should be emphasized because one of the things that this card, Yawgmoth's Will, historically, has been has been utilized for either 
winning the game that turn, like with DPS and related combo decks, or just a burst of card advantage, a flurry of spells, fre- frequently facilitated by replaying a fetch land and playing something you, you discarded and playing a, a, a Lotus or a Mox or something. This card, you have to be proactive in how you're going to set up their graveyard. And it's best if you can have that burst of mana. And so Mana Drain plays both sides of that coin. It puts an intentional, a particular card into their graveyard, and it gives you the burst of mana in the next turn. Now, you still behold into what they cast, though. <laughs> so one other opportunity that I was about to mention was mill, or things that set up mill-type scenarios. Now, it's not like I'm proposing to play millstone or um, or uh, what's the one where you mill 10 cards, glimpse the unthinkable, I think. It's not like I'm proposing either of those to be playable in Vintage. But it could be that the, the Mnemonic Betrayal deck uses some incidental effects to that, to that end, like uh, Wheel of Fortune, for example, or Windfall. <clears throat> I genuinely don't believe that this card slots into any current deck in its current form. I really do think you have to be more proactive in building around this because of the limitations well, the that it has card, built in. I think just at a very fundamental level, it has a very high uh, ceiling in terms of power. Because there's no real, li- like Yogg Moss mm-hmm. will, there's no real limit, automatic limit, to how much card advantage you could generate via this. So, you know, that's, that's pretty impressive on its own, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's kind of like ad nauseum, uh, you know, in that respect, that there's, you've got this card, it might be fickle, but there is a, a real enormous <laughs> p- power potential there. I think the problem, which, you know, we be- have begun to hint at, it's just that for matchup to matchup, it's reliability and that it, it's going to depend upon the matchup to matchup rather. And, you know, in some matchups, yeah. like Paradoxical Outcome or against a Justify deck, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to get quite a bit of card advantage. And I think the odd thing is if you, th- if you, th- if you think about the potential card advantage just in terms of the number of cards your opponent has in your library and the mana you have available that may actually be underselling this card because there will be a slight snowball effect, a positive feedback loop, in that as you play cards from your opponent's graveyard, you will be able to get more mana to play more spells. And what's really interesting is the spells will come from two sources. Mm -hmm. They'll come from your opponent's graveyard, which is now your exiled zone, as well as your own hand. So if you were to play, like, let's say, a mox out of your opponent's graveyard (laughs) and a ponder or a brainstorm you're going to draw more mana and more draw to be able to play more spells out of their graveyard so i think it's actually more powerful in that respect than maybe evident from just a simple superficial analysis of cards in their graveyard and your cards in hand and mana available it also fits really i don't know that i agree with your Mm -hmm. point that it doesn't fit anywhere uh, and the reason is because, to me, this is a really natural Grixis <laughs> card for two reasons. One, it's obviously in that color scheme. But more importantly, mm. and by Grixis, I mean base blue-black. Obviously, Grixis technically means red, but, you know, you could it could be Esper or Grixis. I'm just talking about blue-black right. control, which is usually a big mana blue deck, which is the second point, yeah. right? Of all the blue decks in the format, that deck typically has the biggest overall mana base. And by mana base, I mean... Uh, Overall density of mana and colorless mana sources, such as Mana Crypt, Mana Vault, Lotus Petal, so on. And in the Paradoxical Outcome versions, of course, which are Esper, tend to be Mm -hmm. Esper, 
They also have Mox Opals, which all redounds to the benefit here. This strikes me as most obviously a sideboard card for the Paradoxical Outcome deck or for the Grixis Control deck that it brings in against blue decks. That's what this looks like to me, is a is a one to two of sideboard mm-hmm. card that you bring in against, you know, like you would bring in a Comball or a Notion Thief, but that you can, I think that actually is potentially really good against Just Guy and so on and so forth. The thing that concerns me is that I think that you are right in the sense that you need to have discard to really maximize this, like a Thought Seize, and those decks don't typically run Thought Seize because of the way in which Mental Misstep configures in the form, figures in the mm-hmm. format. The other thing about it is that mm-hmm. because it doesn't exile the opponent's graveyard cards like Dire, Dire Fleet Daredevil, I am concerned that it, it might be one of those weird instances of like a vintage game where you play a bunch of spells but don't quite win, your opponent plays a bunch of spells but doesn't quite win, you play a bunch of spells, and you know what I mean? You just keep ratcheting up the, the thing turn after turn because the resources stay there. Yeah. They're not... They don't go anywhere. They just sit. <laughs> a kind of endless use. So it's going to feel weird, I think, if you like, if you play this card. Now, that's not entirely true, because if you play a permanent, like a Mox or a, a Dak Faden, it's going to stay, stick on your side of the board. But if you play, you know, Preordained, Timewalk, Ancestral, and the opponent does the same thing, they stick there. Now, the one thing that, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like you can even play, I was going to make a, a comment about, like, well, if you use this to play Yawgmoss Will, but, um, the weird thing about it is that, like, even if you play a delve spell, you'd be delving from your own graveyard. So, <laughs> yeah, you made a lot of great points there. And I couldn't help but just be manufacturing more scenarios in my mind for how to maximize this. It, it didn't occur to me in my initial analysis. I was stuck thinking that there are certain card types that are kind of exempt for this, right? Your opponent plays permanence, then they just kind of get around this. But that obviously belies a weakness to targeted removal. Target is not the important part. Removal. This card benefits hugely from incidental removal on things like Moxon. If you have, I don't know, let's let's do a throwback. If you have Mox Monkey in play, let's say you, you're on turn two or three, for example, you've let your opponent play some Moxes because you wanted to walk them into this scenario and you play Mox Monkey and you blow up two of their Moxon. A turn or two goes by and you play this, those Moxon are there for you. Same goes for other kinds of removal. Let's say your opponent resolves Dak Faden. Well, you EOT Pyroblast Dak, and all of a sudden Dak's in their graveyard for you to Mnemonic Betrayal. So it doesn't have to be just, I'm tactically taking things out of your hand with Thoughtseize, or I'm configuring my counterspells specially to give me more flexibility or more volume. It's also simply that, um, that basically anything you do to their board, you get access to. And... If they're outside of your colors, it doesn't matter. If you force of will their their monastery mentor in a Grixis deck, look, there you go. Tap three colorless, cast their mentor out of their graveyard. Well, out of the exile zone. So I think that it, it might be overstating it to say that, it, yeah, it might simply be overstating it to say that you need to build your deck around this when just a couple of incremental tweaks here or there, just a couple of card choices here or there, and you could... Well, be seriously and it can work you uh, can use your opponent's removal as well so you want from your opponent if you play this card and pyroblast their dak faden in play you can then cast yeah. their dak faden or no because it exiles it in one slot spot but 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. Yeah. Not the same turn, but with a future mnemonic betrayal, you could. Right. Also, look at how a card like Kolagon's Command plays with this, right? Destroy their artifact and make them discard, or shoot their planeswalker who's on a low enough loyalty and make them discard, or destroy their mocks. And also, I would I would also add that, well, again, while you were speaking, I was thinking about more scenarios. And this card, unfortunately, suffers from some of the... Um, the, the common tech, uh, tactics in the format, those being Snapcaster Mage and Delve. You don't have to counterspell this if you respond by delving away your whole graveyard. Similarly, if your opponent's just trying to get a, 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 a modest value out of a mnemonic betrayal, like and you Snapcaster your brainstorm out from under them in response, that's it can really that can really dig into the value of this card, and those cards are commonly played. So you're you're going to have to be very careful with this card. And any opponent who knows you have it can be more aggressive with delving and snapping if they want. Right. I mean that's one of the other potential weaknesses of this card, which is that it being sorcery speed, the timing is going to be somewhat inconvenient at times. Mm-hmm. That's fair. However, that that all having been said, if you do structure your deck with with a little bit of discard, or you do time your removal to be disruptive, like destroying Moxen at a key point to 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 limit their mana and things like that, then you you can probably play correctly and intelligently to not expose yourself to things like the the dig through time I mentioned. But uh, every once in a while, you're just going to have to take a chance and you're going to get burned. So, Steve, I think we have properly identified some of the pitfalls from this, this card and some of, the, um, some of the places where it could go in the current metagame. Do you think it opens up anything new? Well, it's not easy to say. Um, my guess is probably not, because the top three decks right now are shops, as we'll talk about in a minute. The Turbo Xerox decks and, and if you're and, there, I can't uh, hear you. Po, and I think that. Sorry, Don't, I was talking we'll into my mute button. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's hard to say, but what is clear is that the as we'll talk about in a little bit, the top decks in the format are Workshop, Agro, Turbo Xerox, and paradoxical outcome and uh against two of those three decks this card can be quite effective but i think the timing has to be fairly precise and it's not going to be a reliable card advantage engine since it's so dependent upon your opponent so i think it it's it's a valuable tactic it has a very high ceiling has a pretty (laughs) disappointing floor but it could give a boost to Grixis-type decks. I don't think you're going to see a new deck. It's not like you would mm-hmm. create a deck around this card, but you could certainly modify existing Grixis or Esper-type control decks to feature this card and, and try and make it work. I think that's fair. Is there any kind of mass mill card that we're just not playing because it's not quite good enough to kill your opponent? No, there is there are mill cards that see play. I mean, both of the the, the Jason Walkers that are good uh, do mill, but um, they also have the effect of killing your opponent <laughs> yeah, once I they agree. activate. <laughs> this does provide a, a little bit more of a niche benefit to applying Dak Faden's loot ability to your opponent. You granted, 
you probably that's don't want to really, do that unless you yeah. have some other disruptive element like Chains of Mephistopheles or Notion Thief, in which case you don't need mnemonic betrayal to right. win the game, I would say. But uh, I just want to toss that out there, that it is a way to make your opponent discard more things. Unfortunately, assuming they have <laughs> access to a mix of land and spells, you're probably not going to get access to anything that, that you want anyway. It is funny you mentioned that. I've, I've been playing a lot of leagues recently, which I'll talk about later. But um, you know, my opponents get sick of me playing balance, so they play all their cards out. And then as soon as they play all their cards out, I start backfading <laughs> them, and then they start holding a card again. So it's it's fun. it is funny how that 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 can work incidentally like That's that. Funny. Yes, I like it. All right, so we're not doing a set review yet on mnemonic betrayal, so we're not going to go so far as to predict top eight appearances until we get to the rest of our guilds of ravnica set review but do you have any other closing thoughts about where you expect this this card to appear in vintage well i think it's a really cool card i think it'll be fun to see a play i hope we see i hope it sees play um it's just it's i think it's this idea of playing opponent's cards is at the very beginning of the game with steel artifact and steel and control magic and so I think, you know, this is kind of like a steel graveyard. It really is, right? <laughs> steel graveyard um, is, is a cool effect. And I, I, hope we, I hope it sees play, and I'm, I'm glad they printed it. I think this is also a card that there's a lot of different dominoes that could fall. But if someday, for example, something in Workshop is restricted and Mental Misstep is restricted and, you know, blue-black control decks become the top of the format again, this could be a really interesting card at that point. So. I think it's worth picking up even if it doesn't see play because it, it'll be a, a future vintage card. I wonder, I agree with what you said, makes me wonder, would this card be better if it didn't give them the cards back? If it had the Ogmoth's Will Clause and they never, never got them back? I think it, I don't think there's any serious question in my mind okay. that it would be. Simply because graveyards are resources. And taking away an opponent's graveyard is damaging, even if uh, they're not immediately yeah. going to use it. Now, the one wrinkle we haven't mentioned is that, <laughs> and this could be really funny, is that if your opponent has a time walk in the graveyard and you have multiple mnemonic betrayal, you could yeah. play them in sequence and take a bunch of turns. So yeah, that's interesting. That, yeah, beware your time walk against the mnemonic betrayal playing opponent. <laughs> yes, I agree with you. It it seems honestly, it seems doubtless really that if this permanently removed the cards, um, it would be hands down better. It would be good against yeah, dredge, and, and the fact yeah, that it would be, be usable, uh, so much more useful against dredge would be a, a huge upside. The kind of main deck hate card. It's not highly efficient, unfortunately. So it's it wouldn't be a game plan in and of itself, but it would be very similar in role to the. The Nile spell bombs of the past, for example. Right. And it would also be useful against like the lands deck, which has all lands in their graveyard. Mm -hmm. Now you can't actually play lands. Exactly. Exactly. Not to mention the uh survival deck that we're gonna be talking about in a few minutes. Right. <laughs> I mean if if you could play the lands, imagine you could play like exploration out of your opponent's lands graveyard <laughs> and wow. then cast all the lands yeah yeah that would be enormous in legacy so, potentially i think that this card suffers unfortunately from two missing clauses the first is that it should say you may play those cards this turn not cast yep 
And the second is that you have the Dire Fleet Daredevil Clause. If you cast a spell this way, exile it, um, whatever the phrasing is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, it's very curious to me that it actually gives the cards back. That's actually somewhat strange. Your example of Time Walk, for example, now granted, that's kind of a vintage-only problem, right? So it's understandable for them to not be considering specifically Time Walk in this problem. But that's still a really noteworthy effect that you could conceivably (laughs) play this card and their opponent's Time Walk four turns in a row. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's really interesting. More if you or they have Snapcaster Mages, right? Because you could play their Snapcaster Mage and snap back your own Mnemonic Betrayal on a future turn. Right. And then Paradoxical oh, Outcome your Snapcaster and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's worth noting, going back to the mechanics, that you could actually cast Mnemonic Betrayal multiple times in a turn. If, for example, you play one cast their time walk you could play a second mnemonic betrayal that turn yeah it would exile their time walk plus anything else you had cast wait and you could cast it no kevin you can't do that because once the mnemonic betrayal resolves it exiles itself no no i mean you could cast a second one you can't snap your own back you're right yep you're right about that you can't snap your own mnemonic betrayals however if you're if you're holding two you could cast a particular card in their graveyard twice using both of them on the same turn I just find that design to be very strange. It seems like it seems risky to me is what I would say. Mm. This this card exiles itself, but the fact that it puts those cards immediately back in circulation seems odd to me. But I guess they designed it such that it isn't a actually effective graveyard removal against your opponent. That seems like the the design choice. Yeah. But I yeah, feel like I it agree. opens it up to interesting other problems. Well, I'm, okay. I'm grateful. Well, I'm, thanks again to yeah, I'm grateful that they allowed us to uh, preview this really sweet card. Yeah, definitely, and I can see why that they offered it up to us because this has definitely some definitely vintage specific interesting quirks to it, and uh, it's part of uh, an elite heritage of cards that let you play out of your graveyard or someone's graveyard that are some of the most powerful in Magic history. So that's Mnemonic Betrayal. We'll talk a little bit more about it during our set review. Next up, we need to talk about the recently completed Asia Vintage Championship. So, in August of this year, on the 19th for, uh, specifically, the Asia Vintage Championship was held again. Now, this is the second annual, is that right? Well, <laughs> there was a, a Asia Vintage Championship that I attended in 2016, but this is the first Eternal Weekend Asia, and ah. therefore the first under the auspices of that, that event. Right, right. Okay, that explains my my expectations then. <laughs> and they drew a healthy 154 players this year. Very healthy. So we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about the top eight and the winning deck, of course. And then we'll do a bit of a discussion about beyond the top eight, the top 32 as well, and w- what some portion of the metagame looked like from that perspective. But let's focus on this top eight. 
And I figure we can review the decks starting in eighth and going through first place. How does that sound? Sounds great. So let's start with the eighth place deck and work towards first place. In eighth place, we have Paradoxical Outcome. This is an interesting list because of at least one key feature. And Steve, I want to get your thoughts about this. Although, okay, there are two things I'd like to point out, but the biggest one that stands out to me is four Trinket Mage. Count them. Four Trinket Mage. Now, we've monkeyed around with one, maybe two Trinket Mage here in the, in the States. <laughs> and, and I personally have played one yeah. Trinket Mage in Outcome and was not overly wowed by it. But this list has four of them. And there appears to be no particular other draw to the four Trinket Mage in the main deck, except that the list happens to have zero Mox Opals, which is a really strange intersection. Right. I would have expected at least one Mox Opal yeah. in a Trinket Mage deck. What do you make of this construction? Well, I think for one thing, the Trinket Mage mm-hmm. probably helps in the Dredge matchup because then you can get Tormod's Crypt and Graft Digger's Cage. But I don't, and he has a Pithy Needle on the sideboard, but I don't think that's what's really driving this. I think it's just, just a deliberate design choice to try and go slower, but kind of bigger up. <laughs> I don't know, bigger in the end or something. I, I don't. I don't really. It does understand give you it, a bit be, of a landslide effect sure. for your subsequent outcomes, right? It's just each trinket mage represents two cards when you pick it up from outcome, and you get more mana. But but there's well, only. I mean, the, with within he, reason, yeah. there's only a few more things that this trinket mage can expect to get after the first or second outcome <laughs> because you've got zero opals. Right. Well, you can't. Right. I mean, yep. you can get the Mana Crypt and the Soul Ring and the Mana Vault. Yeah, After two that, top. I guess you're getting Voltaic Key. The other noteworthy feature, I think, of this deck yeah. is that it is not Esper. It is Grixis. And right. and that manifests in the main deck with a single Pyroblast, right. which is somewhat predictable if you were to say Grixis outcome. And then in the sideboard, they have a Braid by Force, a single Mountain, a Pyroblast, and a Red Blast. I'm not clear about the Pyroblast Red Blast split. There's no gifts on given to be seen, so maybe that was just for style points. <laughs> but pretty predictable what you would use red for in a list such as this anti artifact and Pyroblast. Interesting to note, though, that even without red, we have come to consider outcome to have a favorable matchup against modern workshops. And this list is no slouch. It has one main deck. Hercules Recall and three more in the sideboard. So I just find it a little bit interesting. This person apparently was very interested in defeating shops. So moving on then, in seventh place, we have Jeskai Landstill. Noteworthy features of this deck include two main deck Pyroblasts, and a removal package that has one fiery confluence in the main. The, both of those are typical of what you find in, in the Just Guide Mentor decks of about, mm-hmm. I don't know, seven months ago. So this is a Landstill deck. It also has one copy of Search for Azkanta, and the Planeswalker package is large. Two Dak Fadens, one Jace the Mind Sculptor, and two yes. Teferi Hero of Dominaria. So this is definitely... Yeah, and this is definitely a, a bigger yeah. mana, later game, even later game than normal landstill kind of list. So, oh, noteworthy too, Gideon Ally of Zendikar in the sideboard. 
it's not the first time I've seen that in the landstill list, but it always stands out to me. I like it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Sixth place, we have Jeskai Control. Now, <laughs> you can't look at this deck without immediately pointing out Goblin Rabble Master. One copy of Goblin Rabble Master <laughs> in the main. Now, this is a card that I've. It's kind of like a it, yeah. It's it's kind of ahead. yeah. It's kind of like another young pyromancer kind of role. It is not pyroblastable, and that's a nice feature and an additional threat. And it does help you go wide, especially if your opponent doesn't have an answer to it the turn you play it, because you get the extra goblin the turn you play it. So it's good at going wide right. and pressuring planeswalkers. But it, I don't know. It is just kind of a a, a low impact threat for a turn or two. And <laughs> at three mana, it's it's tricky. I just know it's going to slow you down and be awkward in some games. So I can see why it hasn't caught on in in general. But hey. Making sixth place here is not bad. This is somewhat. This looks somewhat like the Delver decks that you see online because it has wastelands and not all of the Moxen. Mm-hmm. So he just wanted another tempo threat. My guess is this card probably didn't make much of a difference. I played in the fifteen rounds at the Star City Games Con Power Nine tournament mm-hmm. with uh, Thing in the Ice, and it only you know was played a handful of times. So. It probably was not a very significant part. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Singletons can be like that sometimes. All right. In fifth place, we have Golden Gun Oath. Now, for those of you somewhat. who... Somewhat. Somewhat. Yes. This this naming convention, I I have to take, I think, a little bit of issue with because I reserve the name Golden Gun for a multi-Dragon Breath, multi-Gristlebrand, like, uh, Emrakul kind of list. <laughs> this list is straddling the line a bit. Yes. It has Emrakul, but it has Inferno Titan and one copy of Dragon's Breath. So it's it's like a Yeah. It's like a light dusting of Golden Gun. <laughs> <laughs> it, right. And it has Inferno Titan, but it also has the punishing fire combo. Yeah. So it's with Grove. that's the opposite of Golden Gun. That's yeah. that's like the rusted gun. <laughs> <laughs> what it is <laughs> yeah right so this this list is interesting you're right it has it's borrowing from some different schools of yes oath construction it's got the the brian kelly sorcerer spyglass mm-hmm. and it's got a charm which is not technically a brian kelly card is it charm but <laughs> it's that, pretty close though yeah pretty much I'll, <laughs> I'll put it in the brian kelly school but then uh-huh. it's got like yeah like punishing fire combo so you know who knows what the heck's going on here it's just uh, two other things to support what you just observed. One, four Dak Fadens. Four Dak Fadens is a lot. Yes, That's it one is. more than usual. And the other is Deep Analysis, one copy. So this player is current is clearly banking on Dak Fadens milling to buy value, putting Punishing Fires and Deep Analysis and Dragon's Breath in the graveyard, all of which have effects from the graveyard. And is it charmed to boot? So th- this deck just has a lot of milling potential. And what was he using? What's he using Blood Sun for? That's really interesting. I would have to I would have to ask because we, when we reviewed Blood Sun, we definitely called out its various um, applications. I would assume this is coming in against Wasteland decks, right? Yeah. But curiously, Blood Sun turns off. Oh, no, wait, mm-hmm. it doesn't. I was going Neither to say the Blood Sun turns off Grove of the Burn Willows, but the life gain is part of the mana ability right. on Grove of the Burn Willows. 
So you're saying so no, I, I was wrong. Yeah, same with Orchard. You're right. So, yeah, my guess is this is just anti-wasteland technology, and that's probably it. Okay, I guess what? You know, he doesn't have a lot of fetch land, so it probably isn't that painful here. In fact, he has three fetch lands. That's a good point. Three scalding turns, you're right. That's really interesting. Yeah, so uh, uh, a higher propensity for lands that simply tap for mana. Five duels, two groves. A basic and four orchards. That's a little bit more in terms of actual mana producing lands than most vintage lists have. So, yeah, this is pretty clearly anti wasteland technology. So, that especially being able to use Punishing Fire Grove of the Burn Willows to hold off the creatures in the traditional wasteland decks. And I think the sideboard also has one other nod to anti creatures, and that is Silent Arbiter. Silent Arbiter, for those who don't know, is an artifact creature. It's a 4-mana 1-5 that says no more than one creature can attack each combat and no more than one creature can block each combat. So that helps you avoid getting swarmed by the multiple threats of a Workshop Aggro deck or an Eldrazi deck. Unfortunately, both those decks can still just load up on one large threat and get past a Silent Arbiter without much difficulty. So moving on to the top four. In fourth place, we have Jeskai Control, again. This list looks this looks looks fairly standardized. The only thing that stands out to me is one search for Hezconta in the main. But otherwise, one mentor, three snaps, uh, the removal package. Has I think it's a little heavy. I think it's a little heavy on Jace the Mind Sculptor, mm. especially for a deck that doesn't have five box in. But You're right. This this deck has three Jace the Mind Sculptor, which is definitely above average. It does have one Soul Ring to help bridge that gap, so that functions like a Mox in this deck. One other thing of note, in the sideboard, two Smelt. What do you think about Smelt, given well, all the other options in Vintage right now? I I don't think, I don't understand why he would play it over Shattering Spree. I mean, isn't Shattering, I guess it's an instant. He has four Volcanic Islands in his main deck. And yep. a Mountain in the sideboard. I just, it makes no sense why he would mm-hmm. play Smelt over Shattering Spree. Yeah, that's a powerful preference for instance in this sideboard. This sideboard has two priests, one disenchant, a mountain, four ravenous traps, one rest in peace, two smelt, one swords to plowshares, two thing in the ice, and one wear tear. Just a lot, a lot of instant speed effects here in this sideboard. Yeah, the breakdown of a disenchant, a wear tear, and two and two smelts seems very odd to me. I don't really understand why you would play a disenchant instead of another wear tear and why you would play smelts as you said instead of uh, shattering sprees i can see certain players because of their mana base being resistant to shattering spree not expecting it to be maximized but as you said four volcanic islands plus a mountain in the sideboard that is definitely enough red mana to make shattering spree great well third place is another just guy control list and noteworthy departures from the prior list include fiery confluence and full five moxen to support two Jace the Mind Sculptors. This player has a main deck Mindbreak Trap and Merchant Scroll and Wear Terror to go with Fiery Confluence as the, the kind of flex slots. And both the third and fourth place Jeskai Control lists have a pair of Thing in the Ice in the sideboard. So the technology that you brought to bear at SCGCon in Roanoke, some players have not. put in the sideboard here. The sideboard what do you make of that? sideboard is so tight. Did you consider having um, it in the sideboard? But it's probably just a Japanese thing. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what, mm-hmm. when I played in Japan, there was a lot of Oath. So I could see that them <laughs> wanting to have that for the Oath matchup. Yeah, agreed. That's a very good point. 
So let's move on to second place, which is paradoxical outcome. Now this list has both red and white in it. So it's worth noting monastery mentors here, Blightsteel Colossus, one Snapcaster, one Trinket Mage. Those are the four creatures. The red for the main deck includes one Pyroblast. The white in the main deck, in addition to Monastery Mentor, includes one Fragmentize and one Teferi, Hero of Dominaria. The Planeswalker configuration is really interesting here. One Dakfaden, one Karn Scion of Urza, one Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, and one Tezzeret the Seeker. Now, Steve, I don't know about you, but if I was building a deck and I had these four Planeswalkers arrayed in front of me, and I'm playing Paradoxical Outcome, I would seriously consider collapsing some of these into some two-ofs or committing to one five-mana walker instead of two, that kind of thing. What do you make of Dak, Karn, Teferi, and Tezzeret? It's all over the place. It's Scattershot, Helter Skelter. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like a buffet where you shouldn't have taken all of those plates of food. (laughs) (laughs) It probably didn't. Honestly, yeah. Yeah, the thing that the thing that I would say I object to most here is simply Teferi. Yeah. Teferi seems out of place in this list. It's not explosive, it's an incremental card. It's not especially good to pick up with Paradoxical Outcome because it costs 5 mana and it can't do anything extremely explosive when you replay it. And also, it, uh, this deck doesn't maximize the un- the untapping lands value that we've discussed in the past that that allows a deck like Standard Jess Guy to be interactive. Uh, you know, after the, the turn has passed with lands on tap. This deck has all of Ancestral Brainstorm Dig, um, one Pyroblast and one Repeal. It doesn't even have Hercules Recall to fight shops. So it, you're just not maximizing Teferi's inherent abilities, I think, here. Hmm. And just the simple notion of having two five-mana Planeswalkers in an outcome deck strikes me as on the high side as well. This list, how many Mox Opals does this list have? The answer is zero. (laughs) Well, if you were looking just at this top eight, I don't think it would make a lot of sense. I mean, there's a little bit of stony silence in this top eight, but not an overwhelming, right? So... So speaking of Stony Silence, I think then we should transition to the first place deck. This deck is awesome. Now, it's not a brand new feature onto the scene, this survival bizarre interaction, but this is a well-tuned, I think, metagame version of this archetype that we've seen a few times in history. So let me lay it out for those of you who might not have seen this list already. This is a Bazaar of Baghdad survival of the fittest deck. Those are the two primary engine cards, and there's a lot of creatures. Four Root Wallas, two Elvish Spirit Guides, four Hollow One, a Hooting Mandrels, more on that, Manglehorn, four Noble Hierarch, one Spell Queller, one Squee Goblin Nabob, three Thalia, four Vengevine, and a Wonder. It also has, as other functional spells, Ancestral Time Walk, five Moxen, three Stony Silence, four Survival, and one Thorn of Amethyst. So this deck has a number of engines built in, some very efficient creatures, and it can play the disruption game via Thalia and Thorn and Stony Silence very well in many common matchups in Vintage. And then the sideboard has some expected things like Containment Priest, Grafter's Cage, more Null Rod, uh, two more Squeeze to get more card advantage in certain matchups, and then some miscellaneous things, Wisp Mare, 
uh, Kataki, Chalice, Energy Flux, Fairgrounds, Warden, etc. Steve, what do you think? So, I, I think this deck is really remarkable, and this deck didn't just appear out of nowhere um, before it won the Asia Vintage Championship. It had actually begun appearing and popping up in the Vintage Challenges. In fact, there were uh, a survival top aided the August 11th Challenge, which would have been about a week and a day before this tournament. So Mr. Rio probably saw this in the Vintage Challenge, which was it was a uh, fifth finish on August 11th. And then after this tournament, it actually got uh, seventh place in the Vintage Challenge. So there's a pair of Vintage Challenge top eights with this deck. Now, those of you who remember, Survival was actually a monstrous deck in Legacy for a little while before it was banned uh, in, I don't know, what was it, 2013, thereabouts, Kevin? I um, I really can't remember that one. <laughs> and But it, was, it wasn't long after Vengevine came out, right? Right. And Vengevine was part of that strategy along with Basking Rootwalla, which you get, you know, some power with. Now, that deck didn't have Bizarre, but it was able to use it the same way. So Bizarre, obviously, discarding Rootwallas and, Venge, you know, play a, a Rootwalla off of a Bizarre, and you can replay Vengevine's. Uh, get Vengevines into play, rather. But I think the real, obviously, the real impetus here is Hollow One. So Hollow One with Vengevine gives you a kind of a a really uh, strong density of aggro threats. And you're not reliant on the graveyard. So your opponent could have a rest in peace in play, an active rest in peace. Activate Bizarre, discard two car- three cards, and, and cast Hollow One. So that's not something you could do with... Uh, with Vengevine. So this gives it a little bit more graveyard resilience than I think Survival's had in the past. And then the other part of this is the Thalias, right? Thalias, which also show up in the um, in the Vintage Challenge versions, they give you a, a lot of disruption. And it's not just Thalia by itself, it's Thalia plus Thorn of Amethyst plus Chalice of the Void in these decks, typically. And all of that combined with Stony Silence, three main deck Stony Silence here, I'm not at all surprised this deck beat <laughs> beat the Paradoxical Outcome deck. You have Thalia plus Stony Silence, so you have two, uh, you rather seven to eight two mana spells that on turn can be played on turn one with great disruptive effect, backed up by a really efficient aggro threat base. Well, it's survival and or bizarre is your is your 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 kind of engine. Both of them they can work in together. They can work by themselves very well, especially with the Squee. And and it's not just the Vengevines and the uh, and the Hollow Ones, although those the core. It's also the Vashking Rootwallas, backed up by Noble Hierarch, gives you even more power. And Thalia is not small by itself. So this deck, this deck actually, I'm going to go out on a limb. I think this is the Lestray deck. This is a Bertram Stray deck. If you remember, Kevin, so Bertram Lestray very famously got second place in the 1994 Magic World Championship, and today that's probably most people remember him for is that he played. You know, a green-red core deck. Um, but most people probably forgot is that in the ensuing years, he continued to play Magic and played it quite a bit. And he top-aided a number of major tournaments, including the 1995 Championship. And guess what colors he played that year, Kevin? Was that red-green? No, red, uh, green-white. He played these colors. So... Yes. So in a sense, this is really much more of a Lestray deck. That that time he played, let me see, hold on a second. One tiny amendment. Uh, I'm sorry, it was 1996 Pro Tour 
he uh, top-aided Kevin. Bertrand Lestray got second place with White Green. I do think he had a number of other high-level top-eight appearances um, with with these color combinations. And this deck, by the way, this this 1996 Pro Tour deck, had Ernam Jin, Sarah Angel, Spectral Bears, Finehorn Elves, Liana War Elves, Scriptbine, one Autumn Willow, four Disenchant, four, four Swords, two Wrath of God, and three Armageddon, one Balance, along with Icy Manipulators, Land Tax, Sylvan Library. So, I mean, in, in a, as a kind of lineage, this is not entirely dissimilar. You, you've got your big beef, right? You've got your small beef. The Spectral Bears is kind of like the Basking Root Wallow. Then is kind of obviously the Hollow One, Turnham Jim and Autumn Willow, the Hollow One Vengevine. And you've got, a, frankly, a lot of disruption and removal. So um, I think, you know, he has icy manipulators. So I, I think that this is what we're seeing here. And the significance of this deck goes beyond the survival being good and vintage. I think this is the resurrection of the Lestray school in vintage magic. It is the first real aggro deck we've seen and in a long time. And, and you may remember, do you remember, Kevin, the um, Oshawa Stompy decks circa 2004, 2003? Oh, yeah. Obviously, there's lots of elements of this in those, right? De- definitely. And, of course, the TNT deck, the Tools and Tubbies deck, which was a survival deck, also has a lot of elements that are here the, 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 the same. But but it's great to see that back, right? I mean, Oshawa Stompy had Root Maze, <laughs> but it also had Null Rod, and it had right. yeah, an Elvis Spirit Guide, and so on. And that's all here. So I think what we're seeing, and this is not just a Hate Bears deck, this is legitimately the rebirth, the resurrection of the Stray School. And that, if you've been reading my history of vintage, I've been saying that the of the six schools of vintage magic, that's really the one school that have, has kind of disappeared. This deck brings it back and completes my narrative. And what's interesting is it's not a graveyard deck per se, because of the reason I just pointed out. You do not need a graveyard to play Hollow One or Basking Ruala or Thalia or, or Stony Silence. Right, I mean, the Dredge deck is a Reanimator deck. It's cl- it's it's structurally identical to the Reanimator decks of 2003 or 1997. Uh, it's got you know the exact same st- structural components. This deck, though, is really very structurally similar to the Bertrand Lestrade deck from 1996 in Standard. So it's I think it signifies the return of that strategy. And I actually did face this once in a league recently, and I did play Rust in Peace, and my opponent just cast two hollow ones that I had to deal with. Now, luckily, I was able to plow one and then Dak fade in the other. <laughs> but but um, this deck is, I think, I think this is going to be here to stay, and I think it's awesome. Yeah, the one thing that makes me sad is that in terms of the Vintage Championship and Paper Magic, this deck competes with Lands and with Dredge for four bazaars. And so that's the disappointing fact that that I think you've got a legitimate aggro deck in the format that could really show up in non-trivial numbers, but I think is really hampered by the fact that it needs four bazaars more so than anything else. Are you saying that this deck is, it looks like it might be a budget deck because it's bizarre based, but it's not because it has and requires other power. Is that what you mean? Well, I think it's actually something different than that. What I'm saying is that I think vintage, and this is part of my philosophy about what makes vintage great. I think vintage is at its greatest, its apex, when each of the main schools of vintage magic is well represented. When you have good Weissman style control decks, and that can be oath decks in that school, like a, a good Kelly style oath deck does well. When you have good turbo Xerox decks, when you have good workshop decks, 
but also and those three strategies have all done you know have all done well they've won vintage championships or have gotten very close in the last five years but i think vintage is also at its best when you when the reanimator school the dredge deck is doing well and well represented and when the dark ritual combo decks are well represented and when the big and blue decks are doing well and well represented and that's typically as much diversity as you can get you can also get you know, there's there are cousins and variants to those so like within the taxing arc you know broad clap school you get like eldrazi and then you know but it's it's hard for bears to do well that which is kind of the remnant of the listre school as i think this deck actually suggests by having thalia here but to have it kind of free bloom and what was really dead soil i think is it's it's brilliant right that it won it won a title kevin it won one of the titles of this year but i think it's so badly hampered by the fact that it has to compete with dredge for bazaars. So uh, what, what I think, just to restate this really clearly, Vintage is at its best when all six of those schools of Vintage Magic, which have existed you know, since the first couple of years of the format, all are doing well and all well-represented. And, and players can choose any of those schools they want. And I think it's a, it's a shame when the format's consolidated to two or three of them or fewer. And that's when Vintage is at its worst. And I would love to see this deck better represented but I don't, I don't, to me, it's not the Moxon that's the real problem here. I think it's the, it's the bazaars because there are way more Moxon in existence than there are for bazaars. I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. I was misinterpreting your point there. I, I take your meaning now. So I think this deck is fascinating. Do you think, I mean, so <laughs> card availability issues notwithstanding, you think this deck will continue to, to put up good performances in challenges and potentially in larger paper events? I see no reason why it wouldn't do well. Uh, I, it, you know, it's not like, not like I was saying earlier, this deck isn't hosed by graveyard hate. It's uh, very well positioned to do well against paradoxical outcome with with the stony silence and thalias. Um, it seems to me that it should be pretty good against workshops for the same reason. It, it's got a. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it should. I think it should do quite well. I don't think it's going to be a big percentage of the metagame for the reasons we just said. I think it's got mm-hmm. a, a real ceiling. So I think it's probably going to. My guess would be that we're going to see it show up. It probably about a twice or maybe once a month appears in a vintage challenge top eight, and that's probably what we're going to see for the foreseeable future. I don't think this deck is a world beater. You know, it doesn't <laughs> strike me that it's going to come in and defeat everything. But I think, it, and it's also, I think, kind of tricky to operate. I think it's an operationally tricky deck. Mm-hmm. Um, probably doesn't mulligan super well. Although, you know, it does have some nice consistency with both the Bazaar and the Survival giving you the engine you need. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it'll probably be like 2 per, two to 3 per of the Vintage Championship metagame, maybe less. And I think we'll probably see one or two in the top 32 and maybe more in the top 64. That's my guess. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I agree with basically everything you said. The, it, it's probably destined to be a small metagame percentage unless it starts to really, really put up dominating performances, which seems unlikely. Yeah. But it's possible. Right. I do the think that the deck is tricky right. to play. And I don't want to overstate that because most vintage decks have a lot going on in terms of complexity. But this one has, uh, 
some extra layers of complexity given that it, it needs to really toe the line between being disruptive and being aggressive. And it can get a lot of draws that could pull you in both directions. You can have Landmox Thalia, you can have Landmox Survival, you can have Landmox Stony Silence, all in the same opening hand. And knowing the right time to deploy each one of those different paths is huge. And you factor into that that your deck is based around a tutor engine with a dozen different targets. And so you might feel like, hey, Landmox Survival, I've got this unbeatable hand, I can beat anything. Yeah, you don't have to know how to beat anything, though. Because it's got a handful of one-ofs, it's got a spell queller, you have to know when to keep mana up for uh, survival in response to something. It's just the decision trees on this deck are deep, and it's playing different roles in, in multiple matchups. That said, I think it's awesome. I think, I think certain people who have been looking for a deck that was really their style may love to see this and really enjoy it. And so... I wish those people the best of luck because this deck is strong and it's got it's got a lot of play to it, which is great. Love it. I love that too. So where shall we go next, Steve? Well, I think what we should do is we should talk about the rest of the top 32 and then we'll talk about the vintage metagame writ large. Okay. So we want to get to the whole breakdown of bi archetypes for the top 32, but let's review and talk about the top eight because we didn't explicitly state this yet. The top eight had four Jeskai decks, two Outcome decks, an Oath deck, and the winning Survival deck. So think about that for a second in the context of the the broader vintage metagame as we've come to understand it and recent history. Four Jeskai, two Outcome, a Survival, and an Oath. Now the broader top 32. The most represented deck with 25% of the top 32 was Workshops. The second most rep- That's really remarkable, yeah. right? Zero shops yep. and shops are the most the most represented in the top 32. Yep. The second most numerous deck with 22% of the top 32 was Jeskai. So that is a comfortable st- and common story for recent history. And as we're going to show in the July and August to tease a little bit, the July and August vintage challenges. Mm-hmm. Shops in the top eights was 28%, and Jeskai Turbo Xerox decks were 22%. So this top 32 almost perfectly mirrors the top eights of the July and August Vintage Challenges. In third place, we have a tie. Two decks with three occurrences in the top 32, that is 9%, were Outcome and Bug. So those Bug decks, are there's some <laughs> variation there, but they're all Deathright Leovold-style decks. At 9%. 9%. And, and that's really, that's the second most remarkable thing here for two reasons. One, think about the fact we just talked about how much there was two paradoxical outcome decks in the top eight, mm-hmm. right? There were only in the top 32. Yeah. So there was only one more somewhere else in that top 32, and two-thirds of them made top eight. Right. But there was only 9%, which is about half of what you see in the Vintage Challenge top eight. So I would actually poorly represented in the overall top 32, but very well represented in the top eight and in the mm-hmm. finals. And then the rest of the decks of note are two copies each, that is 6% then, of White Eldrazi, Oath, and Dredge. So let's review that list, at least the top few. One Survival, w- one Omni Show, and one DPS. Right. Let's review the top few places then and talk about conversion rate. The most numerous deck in the top eight, in the top 32, excuse me, eight copies of Workshop. That's 25%. 
0% conversion into the top eight. Pretty astonishing. Definitely. Jeskai, seven copies in the top 32, four of them in the top eight. Well, if you count the Lance, I suppose, yes, that's right. Yeah, it's in that, yeah, it's in that Jeskai group. Yeah, so the the Landstill deck is a is a departure from the normal Xerox model, granted, but still a fantastic conversion rate for Jeskai. Steve already covered two of the three outcome decks in the top thirty two converted into top eight, and then none of the three bug, neither of the white Eldrazi, one of two oath, and then the survival deck that won the event was the only one of its kind in the top thirty two. Really, really curious and interesting results. Definitely. And, and I just think it shows how misleading a top eight can be in terms of the overall metagame mm-hmm. picture. Not saying it's misleading in terms of win percentage or performance or anything like that. But, um, you know, this, this top 32 is actually remarkably diverse. I mean, it's got Shops, Jaskai, Outcome, Bug, Eldrazi, Oath, Dredge, Survival, and even a, <laughs> a couple of combo decks. Um, it's not deep in its diversity. There's a little bit of most of those and some of others and then a lot of shops and just guy, but um, it's still much more diverse than the top eight that uh, resulted from it. And it makes me wonder if some of those top eight sideboards that we saw, uh, for, t- for example, out of outcome where the player had more than the usual amount of workshop hate contributed to them showing up in the top eight over the preponderance of shops that were present in the top 32. But you make a good point. Top eights can be deceptive sometimes, and I think this one is an interesting case of that. So we want to move on and talk about the broader metagame picture, specifically driven by the challenge results, Steve, that you wrote about in your recent article. So where's the beginning of that story? Well, Kevin, you know, one of the things that we've done a lot in the past is we've tracked results on the Vintage Challenges, and <laughs> the Vintage Challenges are really interesting. Uh, one of the things that I've been able to do this year, and I started working on this a couple months ago, is a spreadsheet that has all the results, and the top eight results. Unfortunately, our friends Ryan Eberhard and Matt Murray are no longer calculating win percentages for us. The last time in which they broke down a monthly win percentage was March. So all we have right now are top 32 de- deck lists from every vintage challenge. And that's no small thing, right? I mean, that's in most cases about half of the decks in the tournament. So that's a, that's still a lot of data that we have a lot of data points. And it goes back to what a conversation we had, a, I don't know, a little over a year ago, Kevin, remember how we were talking about how we felt about the challenges going from monthly to weekly. Mm-hmm. And one of the concerns I had, and I think I've been proven wrong. So you might recall at the time I was concerned that going from monthly to weekly would diminish enthusiasm for the events. But week after week, we see 60 plus players in these tournaments. So, uh, you know, it's about 20 less than the monthly events were, but it's still still strong enthusiasm. And it's not hasn't dampened over the course of the year or or over the last 12 months even. Mm hmm. Um, it's consistently same, roughly the same number of players. But what has dampened is my personal enthusiasm. I would love to play in these events, Kevin. <laughs> but, I mean, I played is pretty much religiously in the monthly 
Power 9 challenges that started in 2015 and, and up until the last one in, in uh, March of 2000, or I guess it was uh, April of 2017, um, including that one I topped eight. But since they've turned weekly, which happened in May of 2017, I played in exactly four challenges. I played May 27, 2017, June 17, 2017, May 18th and 26th this year. And those are the only two I played in this entire calendar year. And there have been, <laughs> so far this year, uh, I'll tell you the exact number, there have been 35 so far this year out of the 52 weeks of the year. So you know, we've got a lot. I've only played in two out of 35, which is disappointing for me personally. <laughs> But I think really good for Vintage. The fact that we get 52 data points out of the year where you have basically 55 to 7 players playing is great. Don't you think? Absolutely it is. I think there, I have heard from a few of those players or people who are want to play in those that there's maybe a tiny bit of fatigue about seeing the same faces <laughs> because the, the, <laughs> I think, that group I think has the thing somewhat consistency. But, uh, I, think the, this, I think the specific thing, sorry to interrupt, uh, pardon but I think the thing you're specifically talking about is not the challenges, but something someone said about the leagues. Well, that's definitely true of the leagues as well. But yeah, I don't want to put words in, in people's mouths. So I, <laughs> I think if we're going to have a problem with online vintage, that's a good problem to have. I think there being a, a good, well, consistent player base. The reason I say that makes a difference is because so there are 120 players in the league as mm-hmm. of this moment. And I actually just played in a bunch of them. I played in two this weekend, which was Labor Day weekend. Actually, Kevin and I went 5-0 and in both. And nice. I just got my two trophies. I have, I have only played probably in about four leagues this kind of league season before that. And I think I went 4-1 and one in all of the rest. Um, but um, So I have my two little trophies showing up. I'm on a 13-match <laughs> win streak as of this moment. <laughs> wow fantastic yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny well i think it's in those matches i probably played meg weenie i'm mispronouncing <laughs> this person's handle probably like three or four times in mm, maybe yeah. 13 matches and the reason i say that is because in the leagues you do tend to play the same person over and over again because you play the people who are online and logged in during the hours in which you are on and logged in granted that's not true of the challenges and the challenges yeah. you're in a swiss so it's very rare that you would replay someone the only reason you would replay someone in the same week is because you made top eight and it's just <laughs> not very frequently that you would place the same person two or three weeks in a row it just doesn't happen very much so I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen, but you're not going to be playing someone three times in a month, even if you play in two to four challenges a month, right, in the challenges. Right, so right. I think I say all that to say that the complaint that you quoted earlier, that someone's sick of playing the same people, <laughs> doesn't really apply to the challenges. Fair enough. Fair enough. So let's talk about trends then and what you've observed since you wrote this article on this subject. Our listeners have multiple ways that they can interact with this, this data that <laughs> yes. you've pulled. Yes. And some of, the, some of the information isn't really suited for podcast dissemination. We've tried in the past, and it's, it's hard if you're in a car or in a gym or 
even <laughs> sitting at home intently listening to us hard to sort of process it all. <laughs> no, yeah, um, listing a whole bunch of numbers has its pitfalls is, in podcast form. We're comfortable definitely. with that. So I would direct your attention to the article. It's not that long. It's actually quite a bit of information for under about two and a half thousand words. Yeah. Um, but what I want to do is just what I did here. So I took in the spreadsheet all of the top eight deck lists and um, and. Uh, it's, it's actually amazing because I, you can actually almost automate this, Kevin, because I've got in the top of the spreadsheet, I've got hyperlinks for the rest of the, the year. I don't know if you noticed that. But it's, yeah, you, so, you're, so what you're observing is, is something I observed a while back, which is pretty awesome, and that is Wizards does a good job of being consistent with their URL naming convention yes. for specific events. So you know what the URL for the next weekend's challenge is going to be once it's posted. I know what the URL is going to be for the December 29th, I mean the December the 29th <laughs> challenge, which is awesome because yep. it'll be posted yep. the next day and so on. So I have it's all somewhat automated. Um so the first thing I did was obviously took at the top eight deck list, and I and I said this in the article. Obviously, win percentage is the best performance measure because you get it's not you get the percentage of the entire archetype throughout the entire tournament. We don't have that. We have top thirty two deck lists. So what I've done is use the old convention of top eight penetration. What are the percentages of any strategy in the top eight? And it's not one tournament. We have thirty four data points, right? <laughs> so you you have a big big data set. And so the first thing I do, Kevin, is I look, I break it up by month. So there's four or five challenges per month, right? Some months have five challenges mm-hmm. because there's five Saturdays in the month. So the first thing I do is I break, I have the percentages for January, February, March, April, May, June, July, and August so far. Um, there's only been one event in September. Um, then the next thing I do is I aggregate them by quarter. And this is actually really important because just to give you kind of a, an example, take Jeskai, right? Jeskai and Turbo Xerox. Mm-hmm. Jeskai and Turbo Xerox, and try to fi- follow along at this at home. <laughs> 6% of January top eights, 13% of February top eights, 30% of March top eight. 6, 13, 30? Yes. Wow. January, February, March. Jeskai, Turbo Xerox aggregate, 6, 13, 30, right? <laughs> that is, that's incredible. <laughs> that's an incredible oscillation, right? Yeah. It's incredible that any deck could be capable of that much variance. Well, you're going to see a lot more of it in a minute. Yeah. But uh, in fact, I'll give you another one right now. (laughs) This is now April, May, June for paradoxical outcome. Mm 6%, 16%, 18%. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, a pretty wide range. Now that's compared to 28% for February. So paradoxical outcome over the first six months of the year Try and picture this, and I won't, I won't deluge you with a bunch more numbers like this. <laughs> 28%, 28%, 13%, 6%, 16%, 18%—the first six months of the year. So if you kind of visualize the line graph, wow, starts at 22%, goes up to 28%, falls to 13%, falls further to 6%, then goes back up 16 to 18%, and then so it follows this weird. Os- That's just incredible. And then if you want to go even further. It goes back up in July, 19%, then back down in August at 13%. So these decks follow a real oscillating pattern, right? Which is why I aggregate them by quarters, and then I aggregate them by halves. So just to return to our first example of Jeskai, or Turbo Xerox, 6%, 13%, 30%, right? You were really remarkable. Mm -hmm. Average that. The average for the first quarter turns out to be 17%. So it sounds like a really reasonable 
data point, right? I suppose, depending on how you feel about <laughs> averages in this context. Well, well, so here we go, right? So April, May, June for just for Turbo Xerox was 13%, 16%, 20%. Mm-hmm. So the second quarter average for Turbo Xerox is actually 16%, which is 1% less than the first quarter. Hmm. Interesting. Which actually gets you a first half first six months of the year average of 17%. Interesting. Which is like hold to the first quarter, right? So <laughs> so it really does suggest, you know, what do you, what do you think of averages, right? Right. So so <laughs> it, it, there's this weird oscillating pattern that happens with these, even the top decks in the mat, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what, what it says to me is that yeah. That is a number in terms of any given metagame, but especially online, that is a number that you can plan on and probably should plan on. But if it is half or double that number, <laughs> you can't complain too much, I guess, because <laughs> that's just the variance of the situation for you. Well, and, and a lot of these decks exhibit very strange variants. Um, take Oath. I, I said I wasn't going to go on this rabbit hole, but this is so interesting. Oath, 19% of top eights, Kevin, in February and January, or January, February both 19 19 in both months months, okay right Mm -hmm. then it went to 10 percent in march slightly back up to 13 percent april and then collapsed to zero percent in may three percent in june zero percent in july zero percent in august zero percent in august and there's one oath in in the first september so it's you know so it it went from 19 basically 20 percent 20 percent cut in half to 10 then to 13 percent then zero three zero 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 wow that is, that's just strange. I just don't even understand. So <laughs> I have observed but, this trend as I've been watching the metagame go by week over week. I hadn't realized it was fully zero because I feel like I may have missed a week here or there. Well, well there's one oath in the September so far, but in yeah. August and July and May, it was zero. So zero. what do you make of that? I well, mean, it's, it's, it's not like, little- it's not like. Yes, there are certain metagame variations that can push Oath and, and and suppress it, but it's not like some new deck came out. It's not like some new sideboard yeah. technology came out. The Jeskai decks are still mostly just running Disenchants, Fragmentizes, or, or Containment Priests. It's, not, it's well, I just don't understand what the cause is. Well, let me let me offer three potential hypotheses and then debunk each of them. Okay, <laughs> so I love the, this. The first is it's it's explained by paradoxical outcome. So mm-hmm. Oath starts the year at 20% of the metagame, then falls 10, 13%, and then goes to 0, 3, 0, 0, right? One explanation is, is the paradoxical outcome is surging, and paradoxical outcome is pushing Oath out of the metagame. Okay. Do, okay. Their, do their trends that, that, demonstrate that in a kind of complementary fashion? Well, that's what, that's what I was about to debunk okay. it. The answer is no. Okay. Paradoxical outcomes best months of the year Guess what they are, Kevin? The same months that Oath was high? The same months that Oath was doing well. Interesting, okay. <laughs> yeah, in fact, Paradox Welcome's best month is Oath's, is actually February, and its second best month of the year is January. Which are the same <laughs> so, for Oath, okay. Yeah, the same for Oath. In fact, Paradox, Paradox Welcome in January was 22% of top eights, and in February was 28% of eights. Paradoxical Outcome has not crossed the 20% threshold since. Wow. It's the highest percentage it was, was in July at 19%. In August, it was 13%. And in fact, in April, it was 6%. So that's, that's debunked. It's not, it's not productive. Here's another, another theory. Maybe it's just Brian Kelly not playing out. <laughs> right? Okay. Not true. Not true. If you look at the top 32 deck list, there's plenty of votes in these, in these okay. events. 
They're just not breaking the top eight. Okay. And in fact, a number of them are Brian Kelly, not making top hmm. eight. Okay. Go on. Hypothesis. Well, I combined the second and third hypotheses, okay. which was Brian Kelly and other players and playing And other oath. players, yeah, sure. M- yeah, because there are other players playing Oath. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of the Star City Games Con, because remember, Oath was ninth place, mm-hmm. just barely shut out of the top eight. Yeah, and that was on Breakers, wasn't it? That was on that was on tiebreakers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I think that Oath is viable. I think we just saw it in the in the first September top eight, which missed the cutoff for my my report because I wrote my report last week, last week of August. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of it. I think so. I, it seems to I, me that the yeah. that the simple answer is the obvious one, which is simply variance. <laughs> We're just seeing. Or it could just, just be the particular the configuration of the metagame is hostile to Oath at the moment, which I think is probably a little bit true. Well, that's interesting. See, that seems to me like a variation of my observation before. I, If what you're saying is true, I can't point to what it is. Well, here's one possibility. And I, I think this is the beginning. I think that the rise of survival, and I think we're going to see some splash damage against Oath. I think people realize that the the cards they were using against Oath were not actually effective, and we're seeing mm. more fragmentize and more things like that, as opposed and less ah. and less containment priest and stuff like that. So you think a, a subtle uh, understanding on the part of the community has maybe led to a, an outsized impact on Oath's representation in topics. I also think I think that's it. I also think that the broadening of the metagame has hurt Oath. So I think mm-hmm. that, like, you know, Oath is really effective when it's just, like, Jeskai and Shops. But I think that now that Oath has to attack all these different strategies has hurt Oath. For example, let me give you one thing that I do think definitely accounts for Oath's weakness. In May, which is where Oath just fell off the map, it went from 13% to 0 mm-hmm. Bug and Bug Ardex won three of the four challenges that month. I do n- Okay, now that's, yeah, now that's a good point. Abrupt Decay definitely has a suppressing effect on right those, and, and just the bug things. decks in general but abrupt decay is a part of it mm-hmm. yes and yeah. and dps went from being zero percent of the metagame in the entire first quarter of the year to three six three two nine percent i think that deck is probably decent against oath yep so i think there have been some subtle metagame trends i think number one the metagame has opened up more. We have mm-hmm. more decks at the top, and that's harder for Oath to attack a less defined metagame. Number two, I think some decks that are, are, are harder for Oath, and I think number three, people are better at attacking Oath. I think it's all of those things. Yeah. Well, in a metagame of our size, in a, a deck that is hovering around 10, 10 to 20%, give or take, at, at its high points, yeah. that's still only how many copies? Out of 60 people, 20% is only 12. 10% is only 6, you know, so 6 to 10 yes. people yes. On, the, on the low average, maybe. Um, it doesn't take much for those 6 people to all face a DPS or a pair of bug players or whatever in, in, a, in a month to suppress them out of the top 8. And the first half average, I think, is probably the most revealing statistic. That's why I like to aggregate it from the months to the quarters to the halves. Mm-hmm. So the first oath average to the first half of the year, 10%. Mm-hmm. That's including the zero percent in May and three percent in June. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> right. Which is funny to say, but um, <laughs> but that sounds about right to me. 
right? That Oath should be about 10%. Remember, it was what percentage of the North American Vintage Championship last year? Oh, uh, uh, the number that's coming to my mind is 10, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's around yeah. there. Um, you know, and, and, but, unless and until yeah. we get the full metagame breakdowns for these uh, tournaments. Well, we do have them for the first three months, though. Okay. We do. Did Matt and Ryan analyze the full metagame breakdowns for those months or no? Yes. They did? Yes, they did. Yeah. So, so do you have the full picture of top eight conversion rate for those months? I do. Would you like to know that? <laughs> I would. I'm just, I, I know we can't carry this metric forward. I'm just wondering if that shows uh, uh, some kind of revealing pattern. So there were, for example, five challenges in March. Mm-hmm. And there were, according to their data, 24 Oath decks out of 235 de- players in the combined month of March. Okay. And it had a win percentage of 42%. Mm-hmm. And how many top eights in March again? Is that the 13th? Um, I have to toggle back. It was in March, 10% of the top eights. Okay. And it was, what did I say, what percentage of the metagame? It was 10.2% of the metagame and 10% of top eights. Okay, so a pretty even conversion rate then. Interesting. Right. But a 40% or 42% win rate. win percentage was really poor. Yeah, that's that's a really really bad. So even in a month where it put up some numbers in terms of top eight representation, its its win percentage was really weak. Yeah, but its win percentage in in January, where it was 13.5% of the metagame, Mm -hmm. had a 51.7 win percentage and was 19% of top eights. Oh wow! So so the conversion goes goes from fourteen percent of the metagame to nineteen percent of top eights because I had a fifty two percent win percentage. Yeah. So that fell clearly from January to March. But if it's made if it made thirteen percent of top eights with only a fifty two percent win percentage, then I think we can no, attribute eighteen percent, nineteen percent of top eights, and was thirteen and a half percent of the metagame. Oh, okay. So it's this, I was trying to bridge yeah, gotcha. the representation to the to the but top eight conversion. What I'm drawn to is that even in, in one of its best performing months, a 52% win percentage is not good. I disagree. A 52% win percentage is really good. <laughs> Over time, that's really, really good. I mean, the highest win percentage that month, I guess Paradoxical Outcome that month had 61%, 63%, which is absurd. <laughs> like in standard, they banned decks for 55% win percentage. Yeah. So, so I mean, Shops was 58% that in January. Paradoxical was 63%. But Oath was the next best performing deck. It was the third best performing deck in terms of win percentage. Yeah, but there's a really big gulf between 58 and 52 in terms Agreed. of win percentage. Like Agreed. It's, it's like a logarithmic per- scale. What's the... <laughs> I don't know what it's called. What's the, the, the scale where it's logarithmic in one direction up to a point <laughs> and it's logarithmic away from that point? <laughs> you know, it, it, the closer you get to 50%, the more not noteworthy you are, right? 50% well, is... is not just not really. You, most <laughs> decks in vintage have a sub fifty percent win percentage. The thing, the the what drives people to a 50 percent win percentage is, is one of two things. One, it's a really good deck, mm-hmm. or it's heavily played. And I mean, like it's gotten like you know like fifteen plus percent of the metagame, if not more, so that you get a real cross section of the good pl- the bad players are counterbalancing the good players. Right. But it, it's really hard, actually, for decks that are like more than twenty percent of the metagame to actually get above fifty-two percent win percentage. Mm-hmm. You have to be a, re- a really, really good deck like Shop to do that reliably. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess that's what I'm responding to. Then is if you can have a good month at fifty-two percent, then I guess 
to your point, the metagame, maybe, maybe it can simply be ex- explained by s- simple, you know, s- simple metagame adjustments to the deck that didn't manifest as brand new decks necessarily, but just metagame understanding and appreciation for the matchup. And it's win percentage went yeah. down. Yeah. It doesn't take much to go down from there and, and well, stop making top eight appearances. That's the thing about top eights. Top eights is a function of two factors, metagame appearance and representation and win percentage. Mm-hmm. That's all top eights are. Yep. <laughs> so if decks aren't appearing in top eights, I tend to assume that 60, 70 player tournaments, it's going to be there somewhere. <laughs> it just isn't doing well. Yeah. You know, someone shows up with these decks. If you look at the, if you look at the bottom of some of these challenges, there's real random stuff. <laughs> it's real bad. Great. Um, we're burying the lead, though. I didn't. I haven't talked about the January or August, let alone what the pecking order of decks is. So, what would you, what would you like me to share, Kevin? What would you want me to share the the first half res- of the year results before we go to January and August? Just simple. Would that be the simplest place to start? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, the first half of the year. So, this is the vintage challenges for January through June, June which is you know at least twenty six of the challenges. The average results, and you, this masks considerable variation. Mm-hmm. as I've just already pointed out, including mm-hmm. for shops, but clear in a way the best performing deck are workshop decks with 20% of top eights. Okay. The next two, the next two performing strategies are tied. Paradoxical outcome and turbo Xerox are both averaged 17% of the, of top eights in the first half of the year. Mm-hmm. So shops of the top, the top deck followed at 17% by paradoxical outcome and turbo Xerox, which, which is both just guy and Delver combined by mm-hmm. the way. The fourth best deck is Dredge at 13%. Then the fifth best deck is Oath at 10%. Then Bug decks were 8%. DPS or Dark Ritual Combo decks are 2%. White Eldrazi is 2%. And the rest is like 8% less. Yeah, combined. <laughs> yeah, combined. Okay. So the first half of the year, Shops are still in a way the best deck, but they aren't. 23% isn't actually a scary number. Right. But I do want to just note that Shops oscillated. So just, I'll say this once. From January to June, I'm going to give you their shops percentages, okay? Mm-hmm. 28%, 16%, 33%, 34%, 13%, 15%. Dang. So it, it averaged 23, but two of those months, you're at 33 34%, which is borderline dominant. Mm-hmm. And then three of those six months, it's at 13 15 16%. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jeez, a 21% so, range even for the best deck in the format. That's right. Now, yeah. Now, shifting to July and August, this is what's interesting. Shops were a consistent 28% of top eights in July and August, mm. and thereby July and August combined. Wow. But they were in 28% both months. Interesting. <laughs> Which is, by the way, the same percentage they had in January. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it depends on how you project that forward. Does that mean an oscillation down, or is that <laughs> just the, the return to the form right to the where it right. really lives um if you if i'll just give you the combined numbers for july and august rather than continue to give you different numbers but july and august shows a, a separation between paradoxical outcome and turbo xerox i already said this earlier in the podcast but turbo xerox goes up to 22 percent of the combined july and august vintage challenge top eights mm-hmm. which is exactly what it was in the top 32 of the um asia vintage championship yep and paradoxical outcome falls to 16 percent mm-hmm. remember it was 17 percent in the first half of the year so paradox Balkum has actually dipped a little bit in july and august 
And then dredge has actually dipped tremendously. Because remember, it was the 13% in the first year. It fell in July and August to 8%. In fact, if you look at July, it fell to 3%. It was back up at 13% in August, so the average was 8%. So so the top decks, just in order, were Shops, 20%, Turbo Xerox, 22%, Paradox, 16%, then dredge at 8%. And then the the fifth best place deck was actually White Eldrazi. Bit of a resurgence in there. July and August. It, yeah, it's six percent average. And then behind that, tied at five percent were three decks. Survival was five percent of the, the July and August top eights, along with Bug and Dark Ritual combo. So the, there you the have five percent for survival. Is should be noted too is a zero in July. And a, and a right. 9% in August. So all of exactly survival's right. results are in August. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's already competing for like fifth place <laughs> in, yes. in the quarter. So it's it's really up and well, coming. If, if you put that on a trend line, yeah. then it's up and coming. But I, I wouldn't. I <laughs> in the words of Disco Stew, if this trend continues, One thing I'm noting here is that a consolidation amongst the top three decks too. the first half of the year, those three decks made up 57% of the result. In Q3 so far, those three decks are 66% of the result. Yes. Um, And I don't know if that is, if that, I don't mean to say that that represents reality per se and the the past was not. I just note that at the moment, the metagame feels very consolidated at the top. Well, one of the things that I wanted to mention about this is, and I said this a lot in my article, and the article is really written for people who just want to get dive in a little more deeply and, and get some deck ideas. And I, I, but one of the things that the reputation that the Power 9 challenge before was Vintage Challenge is that it kind of washes out a lot of diversity. You go to a local tournament and you got like the Ben Perry coming in with his two-card Monty deck and you don't get that mm-hmm. vintage, the Vintage Online events. But I think... With the transition to the vintage challenges, that's not really true. There's a lot of interesting fringe decks. So I mentioned the three bug deck that, decks that won tournaments in mm-hmm. May. There's a blue-white Teferi deck that won a tournament in, in, in May. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a Grixis Control deck that won a tournament in January, and a Landstill deck that won a tournament in February. And those decks, I think, are probably all viable, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, those Grixis Control decks, actually, if you look at my... At my the raw data, like they actually appeared in a lot of top eights. Just to give you an example, it won the January 13th challenge, but it appears in second place in the January 27th challenge. Mm-hmm. And it appears in the in, in fifth place in the March 3rd challenge. So these decks, these, you know, there's a Merfolk deck in the February challenge. There's a lot of like more fringe decks that actually appear in these weekly events than you would you would think. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that in that respect the the vintage challenge is a real boon for the vintage player base because it gives us a broader sense and a wider sense of what's possible mm-hmm. and the reliable uh, we've said it before in a number of different ways but the access to a reliable player base in these weekly challenges and in the leagues means that players can and have been honing and developing niche decks right and there's just no two ways about it. They are capable of winning, as you said. And there's a lands deck in, in a, a couple of, at least one of these top eights, if not more. Mm-hmm. You know, so these niche decks appear. And I have more of that in my, in my article. You can find the specific links. But um, I, I think they're, you know, I was, I was skeptical. I was worried. Um, certainly it's not spurred my participation, but I'm almost certainly going to be playing in more of the vintage challenges in the lead up to the, 
the vintage ch- championship, but um, mm-hmm. the leagues are such a wonderful substitute as well. So I think this is kind of the goal for vintage on Magic Online. You get 65 player tournaments every week, vintage challenge, uh, vintage leagues on demand, um, and the metagame. I mean, this that metagame we just went off. It's kind of surprisingly diverse, right, Kevin? <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, there's been a consolidation in July and the Q3 at the top, but from a first half perspective, you have no less than five decks. Mm-hmm. It with ten percent of the metagame and six with eight or more. That's pretty darn diverse. And in the big picture, Workshops is continuing to be the number one deck. But inside of any given month, it wasn't always. No. February, paradoxical yeah. deck took first. Um, in May, there was, geez, we had Dredge was the most popular yes, deck in it May. Was. <laughs> had a great so, May. Yeah, especially in the in the Q two time of this year, we've had great diversity even in first place in Vintage. Now it's things of maybe I would say maybe settled down a little bit. <laughs> I guess right. is one way to put it. In July and August, and, and there could be a number of explanations for that. But the simple truth is is that in any given moment, vintage is kind of like in any given Sunday sort of format. Yeah. And any deck really can take down a sizable event like one of these challenges. Agreed. And and look, you have to look no further than the Asia Vintage Championship and that survival deck taking home first place to know that. The vintage is still open. I said this in my article, but Ravager Shops won. Ravager Shops won uh, ten of the uh, of the vintage challenges through August, and and that's that was hmm. a clip of um, um, a clip of thirty percent. So its its win percentage of the tournaments was higher than its top it, general than its top eight penetration, but hmm. but um, it didn't have it wasn't a consistent winner. So you you look like for example in August it won three of the four events but it won none of the events in July and none of the events in June and none of the events in yeah. May and one of the events in 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 April so it's wins clustered like it won two in January and three in March and three in August so so it's really it's really you know <laughs> o- oscillates right it's really it's really there's an oscillating pattern mm-hmm. to these results which suggests to me that there are actually really deep metagame dynamics at play. And I don't, it's always it's not easy for me to identify what they are, but I have faith that they are present. <laughs> so, speaking of metagame shifts and updates then, this what we find for July and August is ostensibly what we have to go on leading into our vintage champs preparation. Meaning we're at this point less than two months away, so there's only I haven't I haven't done the math, but there's probably only five champ challenges between now and champs that are unaccounted for, owing to the one that might come out between now and we're recording and when you're hearing this. the The situation simply is that you have to account for and prepare for the top five, six, seven decks of the format in approximately the ratios that Steve has listed here and in his article but the simple truth is is even though uh, an event like champs definitely rewards reliable and consistent decks we have seen especially even in recent years how well understood and well crafted custom deck lists can and will make deep runs at champs and so we don't want to discourage anyone from <laughs> from preparing as they wish and playing what they're comfortable and confident in and excited about in this event because anything at all can and does happen in Vintage, even Agreed. to this day. And I think the things to watch are watch Survival's performance over the next five to six challenges 
to see if that surges or goes down and and watch i think to see po whether it and oath see whether specifically oath to see whether it continues its descent or or resurges a little bit Mm -hmm. and i would argue that more so than any other deck oath is the one that can appear in strange new configurations at an event like champs and be very powerfully rewarded for even apparently small at least in number tweaks to its configuration the at our last champs with three oaths in the top eight the uh the difference between those lists was was stark and it produces some very interesting matchups and results so that's one deck especially that rewards you for making sure you understand where the metagame's at um kevin i i just can't help but making one comment that's more of an editorial comment uh, or qualitative comment rather than a kind mm-hmm. of objective numerical com- descriptive comment which is that some people have complained lately about the format and i'm not quite sure wh- where their complaints are coming from um now this metagame at least as represented by the vintage challenges seems by my lights much healthier than where we were a year ago I mean, a year ago at this time thorn and mentor were just restricted and that summer was just abysmal remember shops were over 40 percent of top eights and and Turbo Xerox was 30% of top eights, so there were 70% of top eights combined, just two strategies. Mm-hmm. And in the final three months of the year, I think culminating in the Vintage Championship were pretty terrible, <laughs> with Shops and Oath dominating. Um, this is much more opened up, you know, like I said, with five different strategies, more than 10% of the metagame. Uh, so from a kind of purely descriptive diverse diversity perspective, the metagame is much better than it was a year ago. In fact, from a from that perspective, I think this is the best metagame we've had since 2014, because the last three months of 2014 were dominated by Treasure Cruise. The next year was very unhealthy, with shops and Turbo Xerox resulting in the restrictions of Dig and Chalice. The year after that, people complained about Turb- uh, Lodestone Golem until it got restricted. And the year <laughs> after that, people that whole next year, after Golem's restriction, people complained about Gush until it got restricted. And then after that, you had, as I said, leading to the restriction of Mentor and, and Thorn. So from a purely quantitative descriptive note, this is the most diverse metagame we've had, I think, since 2000, the summer of 2014. Now, from a qualitative perspective, I think people are some people are unhappy with paradoxical outcome. But look at the metagame. If you take out paradoxical outcome, mm-hmm. what's going to fill most of that void? It's going to be the decks above it. It's going to be Shops and Turbo Xerox. Then you go from a three, a rock, paper, scissors metagame with non-trivial numbers of Oath and Dredge outside mm-hmm. back to the same metagame we had before. In my opinion, and I'd, I'd like to know what you think, Paradoxical Outcome is actually making this the better vintage format. Well, I think there's really no arguing with the kind of environments that we found ourselves in in prior years that you just described. The fact is, is that we're increasingly far removed from any ban and restricted action. and things haven't settled into a mundane kind of two or three deck only metagame we continue to see spikes and variances and jockeying for position with certain sideboard strategies and new decks coming to the fore occasionally and i just agree that we're in a fantastic place right now where the metagame still rewards creativity still rewards intentional and intelligent Uh, deck construction and play and even without you know major major upheaval in deck construction we still get 
20% variance in representation for yes. even some of the top archetypes, month even the number month. one archetype from month over month. And uh, so to be, you know, with respect, I don't know what much more you could, res- you could ask except for <laughs> a particular archetype to be doing better. And well, that's, that's, yeah, that's what I ask. I mean, I, I, I've had at least two or three people online say in forums or Facebook vintage mm-hmm. group that th- this vintage isn't, they don't like it. And they liked it, and they make a comment something like, I don't like vintage right now. Mm-hmm. Well, my question is, compared to when? I actually broke up the vintage format into nine different time periods, going back to, like, August of 2014, and I ranked them. <laughs> like, you know, the different metagames. It, this, is the, this is one of the best ones we've had since that. Some, now, maybe you, you might go back before 2014. That's fine. <laughs> but in since 2014, since at least Cons of Tarkir, this is probably the most diverse and I think not, you know metagame that's just not been. It's I mean for the last five years, for certainly four years, this format probably longer has been in the death grip of shops and Turbo Xerox. It's been the Cherubdis and Skyla, Skyla, right of <laughs> of the format, and we finally kind of broken out of that a bit you know, with non-trivial numbers of other decks. So I don't really know what people are complaining about, except they maybe just don't like the fact that Paradoxical Outcome can win fast. But, I mean, the Paradoxical Outcome deck is not too good. Mm-hmm. It just lost to survival <laughs> in the finals of the Asia Championship. And it did not, I mean, look at this SCG con, right? I mean, it was two of them, the top eight, and they both got crushed. So, uh, but one by Shops, and I think the other by Jeskai. So I, I think the format is better off than it's been. Is it perfect? No. But it seems to me it's better off than it's been in four and a half years, or at least four years. Well, there is one constant that you can be sure of in Magic community discourse, and that is at any one time someone is unhappy with the metagame. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably more accurate to say at any one time many people are unhappy with the metagame. So if your goal is to uh, eliminate that factor in community discourse, I think I wish you luck. A vain hope. However, yeah, <laughs> uh, I will say that there are certain features of this metagame that I could see not being present that other people might value. Uh, there might be certain styles, certain Such cards, as, certain... That's, that's why uh, I went all the time to talk about yeah. Bug and Grixis and all these, these decks winning. They won yeah. these events. <laughs> They've top-aided. <laughs> Every single thing you want has top-aided a challenge this year. Well, and that's what I would say is it, it could be in some cases, and I don't want to speak for too many people here, it could be in some cases that a particular style of deck still isn't good enough in their eyes. It could also be that some people react negatively to the the top couple of decks in a format being well-established and well-known. I, I do know a couple of people who lament the fact that Oh, that's just a, that's just a stock Jeskai list, right? Yeah. <laughs> like you you play out Jeskai cards and they say, "Oh, you know, I know 57 of the cards in your deck." And some people really despise that kind of environment. There is a, a fair bit of standardization amongst the top 2 decks, top 3 decks in the format right now. I wouldn't I really wouldn't say that. I mean, you look at the there's tremendous variation even within these. I mean, like look at the paradoxical decks. They go from Esper to to Thoughts Thoughtcast you see weird stuff in here. I mean, the, the, yeah. the Trinket Mage thing package, that's far from the weirdest thing that we, we see in the challenge. Well, I'm with you, but I would say that the people who hold these positions aren't, aren't actually seeing the forest for the trees. They are the, 
some people may only gravitate towards like the vintage super league list. You have to admit that there was a lot of standardization amongst Esper outcome lists in the vintage super league near the end of the season, that kind of thing. But I would say to counteract that, what you just said, look at the actual yes. results and comb through them. Look at no further than the Asia vintage championship. And you're going to see two outcome decks in the <laughs> yes. top eight with zero opals between them. I mean, the variety in vintage Without decks is question. there to be had. And so, yeah. So anyone who is lamenting that particular feature of the format as a negative, I say, take a closer look and, and, and maybe just try something that you, that you think isn't actually viable because you might be surprised. <laughs> At any rate, I do think the format is in a good place right now. I do think this is going to be a good chance and there will probably be some, maybe hopefully multiple fun stories to be had when all is said and done. And uh, what do you think the over-under is on Andy Markiton winning again? <laughs> well, he's got to be the odds-on favorite. Yeah, um, but he's, his true. chances are probably, at best, 1-4. So 4-1 four to, four to one odds, maybe? 3-1, uh, to one, yeah, do you think? That three seems to one? probably pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think 4-1 to is probably the ceiling. <laughs> There's still a lot of variance in Magic. <laughs> well... Thank you for listening to episode 82 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.